Good morning from Zurich. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday. I'm Tyler Brule. Coming up over the next 60 minutes, my guest today, Juliet Lindley, Florian Egley and Fabian Kinzelman. They all have their views on what's happened in the world, what's happening this weekend. Juliet, what's happening for you other than big dinners last night? But we'll talk about that later. Big dinners last night, but um, the Italian media. I mean, how can we not talk about how they're enthralled by the Prime Minister's bust up from her sexist, macho TV anchor partner after various hot mic episodes? And guess what? She announced it on social media, of course. Do you have some clips for us as well? Not right here. Okay, maybe a bit later. Also, we'll head to Helsinki for an update from our man in Finland. Finnish government plans to legalize home deliveries of alcohol just in time for Christmas. The same government also promises tighter citizenship laws and a test that some say even most Finns would fail. I'm Petri Burtsov, Monocle's man in Helsinki, bringing you the latest news from the Nordics. And we'll also head to Paris to speak to our friend Adrian Garcia. It's the 22nd of October 2023, live from Zurich. This is Monocle on Sunday. Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday with Tyler Brule. Good morning from a very, very sunny Zurich this morning. Happy to say because it was uh, it was there was a promise of sunshine yesterday and it just it didn't quite happen. You could sort of see it a little bit to the to the west uh, of the city. Uh, but um, anyway, it's materialized today. And aren't you excited and looking fresh? Florian, good morning. Nice to see you. Good morning, Tyler. I just tried to get you off your phone. <laughs> I just tried to make sense of the, you're trying to check, of the you're checking the, the weather, elections. weren't you? No, no, no. Polish elections. Hey, come on, we're doing radio. Okay, so Pol- are we going to do Polish elections, or are you going? Are you going to take the uh, the, the Swiss elections, which we'll come back to in a more um, in a moment? But which one are you going to take, or both, maybe? Uh, yeah, let's do let's do Polish first because we're going to talk about the Swiss a long time, right? You're a specialist um, in red and white flags. Yeah, yeah, indeed, indeed. <laughs> so as long as we have red and white, we're we're fine. <laughs> Fabian Kinzelman is also uh, here this morning uh, as well. Good morning, very good to see. You. Of course, uh, we should always also say yes, international correspondent at the uh, the handle title what's been keeping you busy this week this week it's definitely been the middle east conflict and uh, what's going on there and we still don't know if it's like the if it's laying what's happening right now if it's laying the groundwork for widespread conflict or for like a solution maybe even um, and we will, of course, uh, be dissecting that, I think, as we talk to uh, also our correspondents uh, elsewhere across the world. Uh, and Juliet Lindley, uh, you've already, of course, teased the story again, which we'll spend a little bit of time on. But just give us a, a little bit of a teaser uh, in terms of what's been happening in Rome and beyond. Well, it's a bit of a hot Good morning, by the way. Buongiorno. Good morning. Buongiorno a tutti. Now, you know, how many um, philandering wives have been thorns in the sides of male leaders? Well, here we have, um, and, we, and we can actually have a little discussion about how many political female uh, leaders have been brought down, or not brought down, but tainted by their husband's behavior. Anyway, in this case, you have Giorgia Meloni, whose husband, uh, until she became prime minister, was an author on a TV show, was a producer, but the day kind of she became prime minister, he gets given his own show and he's been anchoring this daily show. On what one what of kind the of show is it? Channels. It's like a talk show, a daily talk show. Daytime uh, or evening? Daytime, daytime. Like The View, and but for, in Italian. Possibly not. as Yeah, something like that. And then all of a sudden, um, she finally had to put an end to the relationship after. She says they had been separated for a while, but basically what happens is, Another Mediaset channel, Canale Cinque, has a satirical TV show that aired footage of him behaving rather vulgarly in the TV studio and like hitting on female colleagues and referring to threesomes and foursomes and affairs and everything. Not good. Very machistic behavior and so on. And so she um, she tweeted or X'd him. 
of okay. life. I think Andrew Tuck, our editor-in-chief, probably has a view on that, certainly from the Mediterranean as well. Andrew, because of course, you're, you're looking uh, towards the east, I'm sure, from where you're perched uh, in Palma this morning, uh, looking towards Rome as well. Towards Rome. I'm just looking out the window, actually, and I'm going to trump you. It's 23 and sunny, so it's going to be a, a good day here. But there's two things, Tyler. First of all, on the goat, I, I wondered if this would be your chance to actually take an emo- emotional support animal with you when you now fly. It would be good for the beer. It's a brand, Switzerland as well, turning up with the goat. And then on the, on the, on the, on the uh, Rome story, it does strike me how many people these days claim that they've been separated for several years by the time it gets into, into the news. So we had Jada Pinkett Smith this week saying that she's been separated for several years from Will Smith. And then also this week, Meryl Streep saying she's been separated from her husband for six years. So everyone seems to kind of disown their husbands and, and, and claim they haven't been uh, connected for a very long time. Andrew, you just, Andrew, just stole, stole the balance of uh, Juliet's stories uh, now for the rest of the program. But anyway, because I know she wanted to talk about uh, Meryl Streep. Let's go back to those goats for one moment as well. I, I do have, I was uh, given two goats. I, I, they're, they're not living with me. Uh, they're living in Stad. Uh, they're, they're adopted goats. Uh, but I do like the idea of an emotional support animal uh, as well. And it is remarkable, Andrew. I'm not sure when, I don't recall when the last time you were uh, in the U.S., but it is amazing when you go through U.S. airports, transport facilities, how many, not necessarily, not necessarily bizarre animals, but how many dogs, maybe sometimes cats you see wearing uh, emotional support uh, gilets. Well, and then the good thing is actually in, in Spain, you see quite a few coming in from uh, Germany and the likes, because we just don't see it in U.K. airports because it's, it's almost impossible to do it. But here you do see... Um, Nice little zones aside for dog weeing and things next to the smoking area. But anyway, it's all good. Andrew, tell us, uh, you're into the Mediterranean. Uh, what, what, what is making uh, news? Uh, of course, aside from, from bust-ups uh, uh, when you look towards Italy. Well, obviously, when you look at the, the El Pais and the, the main newspapers here, they're as, they're as concerned about what's happening in Gaza as, as anybody else is. And they're also, like most nations, they have a... a, a a, a rich and complicated history that involves uh, 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 the Jewish people and many Arab people of descent who are living in Spain now. So they're cautious about all of the things that have been so inflammatory in other capitals around the world. And it does strike me that you know, it's it's one of these things that it's very hard for even newspapers when they they put aside acres of coverage to bring along everybody along that journey. And I think that one of the other things, Tyler, we've often talked about is the, the dangers of both journalists and ordinary people taking to social media to try and unpack you know, very, very complex issues and very emotive ones in just a few sentences. And I've also sort of struck looking at the UK press uh, and much of the, the American press as well about how quickly some companies have responded to what people have been saying on social media. So we've seen this week American law firms sending job offers because of what uh, students uh, like the Stanford have been saying about uh, the situation uh, in the Middle East. And it's very, it's a very complicated, tense, difficult situation. And it, even here, I think, it, it, when I've spoken to people in the last few days, and in London as well, meeting people who, who are Jewish, who have more complicated views about what's happening in the Middle East, and uh, people from the Middle East, again, who have, who have more nuanced views and actually end up within the newspapers, I think. And I want to open this up uh, to our broader panel here this morning, but I'll, I'll start with you, though. And isn't it interesting because we've been through, what, five years, a decade now of 
PR departments uh, and and comms divisions and marketing teams telling their their CEOs and various executives uh, to to get on social media and to you know express your views, uh, stand up uh, for for social causes for political causes, um, and this has happened across the spectrum. Uh, and and of course, I guess if people do get trained into you know uh, getting their thumbs out and, and tapping away, so it's interesting. And I would imagine it's been incredibly incredibly difficult and busy time. If you are a comms director for many corporates, and I, I would probably say, and I'd love your view on this, Andrew, also what this has meant for newsrooms as well, because of course you have uh, many journalists, uh, they have their their day job, of course, which is presenting uh, a radio program or writing their columns, you know, within the pages of a newspaper or magazine. And then of course, they're also, they're promoting as well in social media channels at the same time, which is also in, in a way you could say part of the day job as well. But I'm wondering, do you think we've also probably seen editors in chief also saying, listen, you know, whatever you have to, to express, whatever your views are, they need to go through a series of checks and balances. Uh, you know, other eyes within the newsroom uh, need, need to uh, see what you're saying. Well, obviously in the UK, we've had this big story, which has been rumbling on about the BBC not calling Hamas terrorists. And for many on the right, this has become a, a, a key issue that somehow the BBC is condoning what's happening in the region by calling the, 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 the attackers militants or uh, representatives of Hamas not using this word terrorist. So there at the BBC, you have a very sharp debate, which is being carefully policed. But of course, if you're of a, a newspaper, particularly on the right, it has, a, has no empathy whatsoever with the, the Palestinian cause, then you can be a little bit more robust in, in about what you're saying. But I think what's interesting is, you know, there's lots of stories in the papers today about people who are in jobs where you're a care provider, where people coming into your room, for example, doctors, nurses, beauticians, all sorts of people being called out today, where they have made it very explicit that they have very opposing views uh, against Judaism, the Israeli state, uh, Jewish people. And then I think it's really interesting what happens. To it, because how can you be a provider of care when somebody going under the scalp or, or who's going to uh, willingly allow you to operate them <laughs> knows that you you dislike their faith and their religion. I think it's a huge problem. So I think it's it's of course it's for newsrooms. But I think it's for all organisations to say to people, do not air these views if you're in a, in a position of care and where your your trust is needed by all all communities. Florian, a rather difficult one to uh, to stuff back in the bottle, though, uh, isn't it? Because yeah, it's 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 all, of course, uh, in a way, you know, free open source media. Uh, you can go out there and say what you like, and there has been this social societal conditioning to do that now. Um, but I think there, were, of course, there was that time when you just you don't talk about politics, or just you don't talk about religion. Uh, you know, you could say that sort of many corners of society were raised that way, um, and and now we're we're sort of confronting this partly because of also the tools that are available, but also the way we've been conditioned as well. Yeah, I think I mean this is really a difficult one because I think we're so we're so entangled in this conflict as well, right? By history and and by political ties, by economic ties. So we, I mean, we as the West, right? And that's uh, Switzerland included, that's the UK included, and of course the US included. And and I think that somehow um, that somehow makes it difficult or more difficult also to trust um, our institutions and kind of and kind of fuels that everybody goes out and, and has his or her own narrative um, because you you are seeing you know that a lot of the a lot of what I see for example as problematic is that we have we have extremely little 
actual foreign correspondence in Gaza, right? Um, so, so we have um, a, a a problem of getting of getting, I think, accurate on the ground news at the moment, um, and yet we have a system that is very entangled, and I think that leads to a lot of people seeking other other channels to kind of voice their views and their opinions. And and it's really hard because I don't see it that clear cut. Like I see part of that as, as good, to be honest, um, because you have other channels. But then, of course, it becomes extremely, um, extremely complicated. And I have no idea how to like from my position here, judge, you know, what's what's relevant, what's not, what's closer to the truth or what's not. Fabian. But when it comes to positioning, um, for example, we have a recent example where most of the Swiss companies actually did position themselves. And that was when Russia invaded Ukraine, for example. They all put out statements. Why not this time? Why not saying something against anti-Semitism? And this is something you we had lots of um, foreign correspondents in Israel, like having proof of that. But the only Swiss company putting out a statement was actually Novartis. And then Two weeks after the massacre, I think Sergio Amorti put out a statement. Um, but and just Sergio Amorti being the, the, the CEO of, 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 of UBS. UBS. Exactly. Um, what did the statement say? Um, I don't remember the exact words, but it was like definitely like against. Um, it was a strong statement against anti-Semitism, but also like against violence in general against civilists, of course. Like I think no one would put out a statement without like also mentioning Gaza in some way and mentioning the situation of civilians in Gaza. Um, but compared to Germany, I think like 100 German companies put out a statement today or yesterday um, against the growing anti-Semitism and the growing violence and hate against civilians. Andrew, just to, to, to bring you back uh, in in on this, uh, and, and I'm wondering, I want to go back to, to the newsroom and, and the con the conversations. Uh, and this is, of course, a time of year when media companies, big and small, they have their, their moment of, of reckoning. You, you, of course, you're taking stock as to what's happened over the last year. And, and there's, you know, all, all types of organizations. And I think, you know, Florian brings up an interesting point there as well. It, it is remarkable, actually, watching coverage and how you know how few networks we're talking from a tv perspective how few networks actually have correspondence in gaza plenty of people in israel plenty of people also commenting in from amman and and cairo um but you know you're having to spend a lot of time on al jazeera for in fact to actually see people on on the ground yes and i think the the, the beyond the the the, the correspondence what's happened is there's been a kind of a network of essentially uh, citizen journalists putting out video placing it on social media and i know there is a concern because i've been reading about it over the last couple of days that what's happening is that while hamas may not be winning in 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 terms of guns and and territory what will happen is that they they are doing very good at taking control of the the, the propaganda war and that their story and their version of events is becoming quite dominant. And there was a there was a survey this morning that in the UK, the number of people who whose empathy was with with either with Israel or with the Palestinians was, was pretty evenly split. Many people not going one way or the other. But there was certainly concern that actually that by not having people on the ground, by not by not telling the the nuanced story of what Hamas was doing, only what the attacks were doing. But in fact, the, the the story was buckling in a way that the Israelis would come to regret. And, and I'm just curious, uh, when, when again, we look at also another time of year, which is, of course, holiday period uh, coming up, we've seen 
um, the boom, the, of course, the rise of, of Dubai, the UAE in, in general. Uh, it, what this is also going to mean for other parts of, of the region, does it, does it mean that, you know, that the likes of a, of a Dubai you know, has to make sure it continues to, to bolster its own brand in terms of that it doesn't become a flyover state? Uh, because, of course, you know, we know some people don't have the best command of geography. They hear Middle East. Um, and, of course, they're, you know, they're instantly spooked by everything which is, which is happening um, within the region. Uh, and, of course, you know, this week um, as well, you've got the Future Investment Initiative starting in Riyadh. You have MBS uh, inviting the great and the good of the world uh, to talk about, of course, the hundreds and hundreds of billions uh, that are going to be spent on all of these initiatives. Do, so do we do we also have a bit of a parallel world? Of course, we know this has been a long burning uh, conflict, uh, which, of course, has taken an, an incredible spike at the moment. But I'm just wondering your take on that, Andrew, about a parallel Middle East um, in terms of what happens in the Gulf versus what we have happening on the edge of the Mediterranean. Well, what's fascinating is because, you know, I was cautious. Uh, uh, Lex Self, who's our, our, our foreign editor, is, has gone to this um, Davos in the desert. And I said to him in the beginning, God, I wonder if they will pull the plug on this. It's going to be difficult getting um, outsiders to fly into into the region at this time. I wonder what, 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 the, what the mood will be. But there hadn't, there was, I was wrong. There was, there was no shift in, in, in the willingness for people outside of the, the region to fly in. They've, they've pressed ahead. And I think that what you've witnessed, Tyler, in the, in the many trips you've done recently to, to the region, especially to the likes of Dubai, is that they have created this, this extraordinary you know, a situation almost outside the news. So it's a place where people come from Russia, people come from Ukraine, and their kids end up in the same school and they're kind of picking them all up at the, the school gate in their SUVs, and they kind of get on. There's a suspension of hostilities almost in 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 in, in the region, within these within the, the UAE. They've, they've made this this very successful business first district, and I I don't know I I, I think that the um, the resilience of Dubai, even in recent years, shows that it, it it should probably be okay. And I think that the the way that they have have been cautious about how they express their empathy uh, uh, to both sides in this at this time has also been skillful and careful. And, and of course, the one to watch is Qatar, which has been you know, obviously um, instrumental in getting out the, the two U.S. hostages and um, we believe is being contacted by every government now and needing to get its citizens out of Gaza. So it, it, it could be diplomatically, it could be a, a, a good, good moment, but you're right, it's going to be testing, but I think it will be okay. Uh, Florian. Yeah, so so thanks thanks for this account, Andrew. I think what's what's interesting is probably people will still still want to go there, and I don't see people not you know traveling um, to the region because they think like all of Middle East is now is now uh, is now um, um, you know not 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 safe anymore. Um, but the problem is that the political attention shifts, and there is like there's only a certain amount of of things you can keep your eyes on politically, right? Um, and so, for example, we have the upcoming um, international climate conference in Dubai um, that's later this year, end of November, beginning of December, um, where actually a lot of, so the UAE um, is, is basically coordinating, you know, diplomatically the, the entire world of, of how to go about um, um, the, the, the climate crisis. And, and I think there is a real, there is a real threat that 
that um, events like what we've what we see now in Gaza um, are just pulling so much political resources um, um, into that. And that's not just on climate, it's on other topics as well, but that's just one example, one case in point, that we're actually not advancing on other agendas that we really, we really desperately should. And I think that's that's what I see rather as a, as a real threat, like this kind of drawing all the resources and attention um, onto one thing and that, that's kind of stalling progress on a lot of, a lot of other issues such as um, the climate agenda. Um, particularly in the Middle East, and I think that's more broad, and that's 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 broader than just, so to say, the willingness to travel. Indeed, Fabian. Just uh, when when you look at yeah. uh, this story uh, as well, of course, Handelszeitung, as the name says, uh, it's your your business focus paper, uh, Switzerland, but also looking at at the world as well. But it must be, you know, if you if you're in you know one of the other newsrooms down the street, which has a, a broader general news agenda, uh, it's you know there's there's only of course so many conflicts that you can cover, um, and and probably people who are uh, you know spending time uh, in 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 the Ukraine on the front lines are maybe feeling a little bit lonely um, when they had two or three colleagues maybe around them and 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 different support teams uh, and and now you're maybe down to to one even even with big organizations uh, because you know we're, we're looking at the monitors here you see all of those people uh who are on cnn or on bbc have been demobilized and now of course now they're um in in israel and other countries in the region Exactly, you're absolutely right, and that's what I wanted to to bring up after uh, Florian's comments. Um, and also, it's like many newsrooms, especially in Switzerland, um, don't have like a bunch of correspondents abroad. They don't have three people in Ukraine. They might just have one person, and this person is now going to Israel, for example. So this is like how the attention shifts. And if I'm looking at newspapers, I feel like Ukraine is out of the headlines for two weeks now. Absolutely, and uh, Julie, you have a, a very um, busy newsy household uh, as well. We won't talk about the extended family, what they've done in the past. But of course, every time I visit, there is always there is always a conversation uh, about the good old days of journalism, uh, as opposed to how uh, one covers things today. But um, maybe maybe the take from your sofa. The take from my sofa and from the famous dinner parties that seem to take place at my always, house. Always, always. No, I mean, can I just can I just bring down the fact that it's such a um, it's such a divisive topic, isn't it? I mean, even more so than the Ukraine Russia conflict. But at the end of the day, it's it's all about. There's this hierarchy of human life, and this is what you're hearing so much more of this antagonism against this because. Palestinian kids are lesser victims and and they seem to be sort of devalued by their association with Hamas. And that's where you're getting so much backlash now with with saying, like, how is it okay to kill Gazan children because you're trying to protect Israeli children? And it's just this huge disconnect. And that is one of the conversations that is taking place at home. It's a humanitarian issue. This is about human lives. And someone said, I'm for neither side. I'm actually just for peace. And that sounds so like Miss Universe, you know, I just want peace in the world. But can we talk about that at the end of the day? We can. That's what we're doing. We're trying to dissect it over the air here. I'm going to uh, bat it over to Andrew, um, Andrew, because you can conclude on that topic. I'm going to hand, hand over the, the difficult baton. Um, but at the same time um, as well. Um, we just um, two two issues have just landed, um, and I'm not talking about political issues. I'm talking about, uh, of course, uh, two titles. Um, Andrew November uh, has just hit newsstands around the world, at least most newsstands as well, with uh, with with efe- efficient logistics. Uh, and also, we were talking about the Middle East. Um, that uh, our issue of the entrepreneurs is out, and and curiously, this was something which was commissioned a very long time ago. These were conversations that were happening back in April, uh, back in May, um, in in the UAE, in Dubai. 
Those have both landed. Um, hopefully you've had a bit of time uh, on your flight down to to Palma and and have that moment, which I said, which I, I dropped your note about. Isn't it nice sometimes you're on a plane without Wi-Fi these days just to actually spend time reading your own magazine? Yes. Well, uh, first the issue. I think the, the issue, you know, it's... Uh, it's an amazing issue. It's a design-focused issue. But as I made in a comment this, this week when we did the, the Monocle Minute, I think it is still fundamental, that the, the important that the magazine brings some stories of hope and positivity and benchmarks of, of, of aspiration and ideas that we should pick up. So we're in Jakarta. We're looking at how that country has, has fostered a new generation of entrepreneurs. We're, we're, we're looking at everything from plug-and-play electric aircraft in Norway, will they actually take off? There's an, an epic journey across the Chechia with uh, Nick Manisra, a, de- a design and architecture editor, just pit-stopping at all of these amazing outposts. So I hope it's an issue that kind of roots people, encourages people to think that even now there are things that we should be hopeful about. And there are extraordinary interviews with, you know, with uh, Shigar Raban, with Ginny Gang. So a really inspirational issue. But then you're right, the, 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 the entrepreneur's issue is looking at the, at the UAE and a really deep dive. And I think for lots of people who had their, their view of the region set maybe five, ten years ago, as all glitz and glamour and just build high, build fast. Suddenly you're meeting this generation of people who, who are not going in to make a quick buck and leave. They're there to stay. People trying to create uh, industries around craft and design and just really interesting players. So it's it's it will be fascinating to see um, all, what happens to all of these people over the, over the months and years ahead. But I think it will all be a positive story. And it's a great, great deep survey. And just interesting to see a country unpacked by the monocle editors because they always get to discover things that other people haven't seen. Andrew, just very quickly, what happens on a Sunday afternoon in Palma at this time of year, at least for you? Uh, at least for me. So I'm going to uh, now go walk into town and uh, into the old city to uh, uh, have brunch with uh, uh, an architect friend who lives here in the city. And then this afternoon, I'm going to take my towel down to the beach, which uh, I, I've, got, I've got a bus pass now. So I'm going to go like 10 minutes on the bus where there's a very quiet little bay and I'm going to have a, an end of day swim. So it's, it's pretty amazing to be here. Very good. Andrew Tucker, a Mediterranean editor at large in Palma. Uh, much more coming up uh, in the next half hour of the program. But now back to London. Emma Nelson is there with the news headlines. Thank you very much indeed, Tyler. The Israeli military says it's stepping up its campaign against Gaza. A spokesman for the Israeli Defence Force said an increased number of strikes will minimise the risk to Israeli soldiers in the next stage of the war against Hamas. Residents of Gaza City have been urged to continue moving south for their safety. Meanwhile, the UN has warned that the first shipment of aid into the Gaza Strip on Saturday was just a fraction of what is needed. Doctors Without Borders has also said that the convoy of 20 trucks that brought in food, water and medicine was totally insufficient. Six people have been killed and a further 16 injured after a missile hit a distribution centre in eastern Ukraine. It's understood those killed were postal workers at a sorting office in Kharkiv. People in Switzerland take part in the country's federal elections today. The turnout is expected to be less than 50%, with most voters casting their ballot already by post.
And when most people dream of their perfect holiday, they may not think immediately of the northern British city of Hull. But for the Bavarian tourist Rainer Schmidt, what started with a business trip in 1991 has become a Yorkshire love affair of 32 years standing. Rainer says he really fell in love with the English breakfast. British sausages aren't the best, he said, so he makes sure to swap it for extra bacon. But otherwise, it's great. The Lord Mayor of Hull has joked that Rainer's annual trips are keeping the city's economy going. And those are the headlines. Back to you, Tyler, in Zurich. Emma, thanks for that. Uh, can you paint a picture of Reiner for us? I think we can imagine. He look, he's a man who looks happy and he's a man who enjoys his breakfast and he's a man from Bavaria. <laughs> Enough said. And that's right, all you really right, need to right, know. Right but there. I, haven't quite got the, I haven't quite read the Hull entry on the Monocle Quality of Life survey just yet. Or may, maybe I'm having a blank here. You have to wait till like, the next yeah, July. Yeah, I can't wait. I have to say there's raised uh, eyebrows around uh, the table uh, j- just now when you were talking about the turnout uh, numbers. Uh, and uh, every, all eyes were on, of course, uh, Juliet. Uh, this is the low turnout numbers, of course, for the, uh, the, the Swiss elections. We, we've got the ma- a massive... <laughs> package uh, sitting on the table here, uh, which is the ballot, of course, uh, which, of course, it's too late to go in as well. Julie, what, 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 ha- what happened? Okay, in your defense. In my defense, it, it is a lot of paperwork in this big fat envelope, including a pink slip that says, just remember that um, you're only allowed to put one val lister, one um, party name on your list. But most importantly, the, the urns, the ballot box is in my town, which is the same as your town, close at 11. So had I not been on air, I you would have done it. Would've been able to pop this in the ballot box. However, on that note, I did have a long conversation with Florian about this. And he did acknowledge that, first of all, it's all in German. I could request that it be in Italian. It's definitely not translated into English. There's a lot to go through. And he admitted that actually when he wrote down all the names of the people that he wants seen, that they all kind of are his friends. Okay. Well, just I just wanted to say we have, uh, Emma, you're on the line. Of course, Desi uh, is here, uh, our engineer in Zurich. Do you think that we can uh, reorder the script so Juliet can leave at 1045 Swiss time to get to the ballot box? Because it's only a seven minute drive back to your village. Democracy is pretty important. Juliet, get going. (laughs) Uh, Florian, just tell us what's at stake uh, in in this election, if you can condense it uh, for us. Uh, it's a it's a multi-party system, um, so it's it's not that exciting, and I think that explains partly the the low turnout. Um, so what will happen is, I mean, what will likely happen is we've seen kind of the green wave, so we've seen all the climate strikes, the Green Party and the Green Liberals, both um, of which kind of campaign around around climate um, with 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 somewhat different agendas, but same topic. They they made massive gains four years ago. Some of these gains will be reversed, so we expect the Greens to lose about half of what they gained four years ago now. Um, but we're talking about you know two percentage points here, so it's all kind of pretty marginal things. The right wing party will gain a bit of that. Um, a part of that will go to the to the socialist party, um, which which also lost four years ago. So we're we're going to seeing a bit of like a, a rollback of what happened four years ago, um, with the effect being that probably the centre and conservative forces will be a bit stronger in parliament. Um, and, and I think all in all that that won't change drastically. What is going to be more interesting, I think, is um, um, beginning of December, we're going to um, um, have the parliament vote the new member of the federal council. So one federal councillor um, is stepping back and he will be replaced. And that will be 
um, first of all, more interesting because it's less clear what's going to happen and also more consequential, I think, for the country, um, because this is kind of the governing or the executive of Switzerland. It's seven people that are technically ministers, but together form or constitute the government. And they're quite powerful because they control um, the, the big lines of the administrations. And we've We've had like um, a federal council for the past uh, few years that I would say is is, is extraordinarily weak, um, and so and one of the stronger members is is, is stepping back. So I think um, it's going to to be quite uh, consequential for Switzerland and um, what's going to happen there, probably more so than what's happening today. But you're talking about, of course, a few percentage points uh, here and there. So in many ways, stability and, and business as, us- as usual as well in Switzerland. For sure. Yeah, yeah. Not, not much will change in Parliament. Uh, going to head up to uh, Helsinki right now. It's uh, just going uh, just gone 11.35 there. Uh, our correspondent uh, for the Nordic region, uh, Petri Bristov, uh, is there for us this morning. Uh, good morning, Petri. Rather rainy and, and overcast Helsinki. The winter is coming. It's about plus five time to put on the winter tires. Hopefully Zurich is a bit warmer. Uh, on those winter tires, are those studded tires uh, in, in Finland or, or Yes, th- those would be studded tires or more and more actually. Uh, um, I don't know how, what they call it called in English, but these traction um, tires that don't have studs, but still uh, provide a lot of traction. Say, say it for us in Finnish. Kitkarenkat. <laughs> Don't you love the Finnish language? It's, I'm a big it's, fan. It's it's very catchy. I can see it on uh, on those posters all over uh, Helsinki uh, around, uh, of course, the, the various auto dealerships. Uh, Petri, tell us uh, what's uh, what's what's happening uh, in uh, at least in, in in Finland, but maybe the broader Baltic region as well. Yeah. So let's start with a very positive piece of uh, news from my native Finland. So the government aims to legalize alcohol home deliveries, and um, as as you might. That's a vote winner for Finland, for sure. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, <laughs> so, I, I, as you know, um, Finland has an alcohol monopoly when it comes to stronger, you know, basically anything stronger than a beer. Only, uh, only a, a state monopoly alcohol shops can can sell them, similar to to what we what we have in Sweden as well. Um, and now. The government basically aims to allow both alcohol, so the state monopoly, plus all the sort of kiosks and food retailers that are allowed to sell beer. Um, the government plans to allow them to uh, deliver the purchases home uh, as well, not just uh, to, to be bought from the shop. And this is something that trying to trying to ramp through before Christmas, so making a lot of Finns happy uh, before Christmas. But it doesn't come without um, some 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 issues as well. So, for example, you know, how are you going to make sure that uh, that uh, you know people under the age of 18, which is the legal age for for drinking, uh, don't receive those items uh, when 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 they're delivered? So you know they're still trying to iron out those those practical details. But I mean, overall, that's a very positive piece of news, I, w- I would argue. I mean, Patrick, listen, I, I drove by Juliet's house last night. She was out for dinner, but there was a party raging there. Obviously, there was probably booze being delivered to her house as well, and everything looked absolutely fine. The house was still there this morning, Juliet, right? So uh, I, are you fine with home delivery of There alcohol? was no party. There was no alcohol. Well, but I just want to ask anyway, Petri something but, quickly, because yeah. he mentioned the alcohol delivery being linked to making people happy. And of course, as we know, the Finns are the happiest people on the planet. But Petri, I just went to your 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 country's greatest exports stand-up comedy show here in Zurich, Ismo. Oh, of course. Oh, my Ismo, gosh. a legend. How, how was he? A gig? legend. He was in gr- top form. And of course, he started off saying, one of the things that baffles us Finns the most is that we are at the top of the happiness rankings because we all looked at each other going, I'm not happy. You're not happy. He's like, how did we end up being happy? And then he goes, oh, probably we filled out the survey like at 11 p.m. on a Friday night, completely drunk. 
Yeah, I, I agree? agree with Ismo. That yeah, must okay. be the only reason. Not happy, actually. <laughs> okay, and for our listeners uh, who, who, who don't know uh, this, this wonderful national export uh, of yours, tell us about him. Right. So he, he has this kind of a deadpan uh, Finnish uh, delivery. Um, he, he, of course, does the stand up in, in, in English, but, you know, he plays a lot on, on these Finnish uh, stereotypes of how, how the Finns are. But he just does it in a very sort of like universally funny way. I, 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 I know that he's been very popular in L.A. He used to maybe still lives there. He, um, you know, he's done gigs in Hollywood and all the local places in, in L.A. And he's been quite quite popular plus he's been on the late night circuit also in 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 the u.s and 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 gotten positive feed but i, I think he's the most popular finnish if not even nordic comedian uh, at least in the u.s uh julia did, did you like it and, and who dragged you along no loved it my bestie who's visiting from france he got tickets for both of us because we're both big fans but most importantly what is amazing is that the audience are all non-english speakers and ismo is a non-english speaker but most of his banter is about the english language some of it is a bit too rude to say on air but if you go and look him up he has he looks at the various ways that certain rude words in english are used and it's rather amusing Okay, that, that's uh, something uh, maybe for you, Petri, for our Christmas special uh, <laughs> as well. Uh, tell us, uh, maybe going to, uh, we'll stick stick with the government story uh, as well. But of course, uh, I would imagine that this is a story, it's related to immigration, probably has a lot to do with one of your neighbors as well, uh, and what's what's happening uh, to the west of the country. Yeah, that's true. So so uh, Finland has, ever since the summer, has um, had a um, sort of a right-wing government where the conservatives govern together with the uh, far-right uh, true Finns or the Finns party as they're called nowadays. And one of their main election promises was to introduce tighter uh, immigration laws and citizen- citizenship laws. So basically this week they laid out those plans uh, that uh, will see it uh, more difficult to gain Finnish uh, uh, citizenship. There, There's going to be you know, certain regulations regarding how long you have had to live in Finland before that, income requirements as well, and you need to have a clean uh, criminal record. But then, I mean, this is the, the, the biggest talking point. They're planning a kind of a, like a citizenship test uh, uh, as, as, as well. And, you know, of course, this is nothing, nothing new. We've seen this test in, in several European countries. I know Denmark, for one, um, they, they have a similar test, but this is something new for Finns. So, so right now you only have to do a, a language test, uh, but in the future, they're planning also to do a, a citizenship test. And I think there's been a, some articles in the, in the local press suggesting that most Finns would fail this uh, test as well. And, and yeah, but it's, it's going to be interesting to see what they, um, what the test will be will be like but yes as you as you mentioned tyler the background to this is of course um the um problems uh, that sweden has had with um, with immigration and finland uh, trying to learn from the mistakes that sweden has had uh, with uh, in- integration and uh, yeah i mean um some some people who oppose these tighter laws say that you know Finland is to begin with quite an un, unattractive country for for migrants to move into any kind of migrants you know be it refugees or people coming coming here to work so you know painting a picture that makes Finland even more difficult to 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 get to might not necessarily be a be a good thing but let let's see. Uh, Petri, there's a story in the NZZ, uh, the Neue Zürcher Zeitung, uh, this morning, uh, which which is it's the dateline on it. It's from Tallinn. Uh, Linda Koppinen uh, wrote, wrote the story, and it, it's a comment piece, and it's a comment piece about, of course, uh, Sweden, and and a little bit also then I think reflected through the lenses of of, of the neighbors as well. Everyone seeing what what happened, uh, of course, uh, with mass migration. But that's one topic. But the issue is the, just the lack of integration. That's a topic that you that you raise. So of course you can do these tests, and um, and people can study for 
for them, etc. But it comes down to, of course, integration and bringing people along. So I'm just wondering what uh, Interior Minister uh, Mari Rantanen and what, uh, what, what has been proposed, though, on the integration side to, to ensure, okay, yes, you do pass the test, but how are you brought along? Uh, and of course, you have to make an effort. It's not just Finnish society has to bring you along. You have to, of course, step up as well. But what is the narrative around that, Petri? Well, the narrative, of course, you know, uh, you're putting me in a difficult place because I have to defend the true things. But what, what, what they argue basically is that, you know, once, if if only those people who who pass the citizenship test, and that means that they, in the in the Finns party eyes, means that they sort of understand the fundamental values of Finland. And then also they're they're planning to introduce a tougher language test. So, you know, you need to be able to speak quite fluent Finnish or Swedish uh, to get the citizenship. So, you know, they they argue that this means that you are you are more likely to then integrate into society when you understand the fundamental values and, and the languages as well. I, I'm not personally sure that I, I agree with that because, um, you know, it, it takes effort also from from the whole society and not not just the people that come here it's you know we we Finns who live here also need to have the willingness to to integrate uh, immigrants and 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 you know welcome welcome them and i think that's where sweden has 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 failed also that you know sweden has these several swedish cities have areas where it's only you know majority of migrants only only living living there and then swedes themselves live in in nicer areas of town and and this is also something that helsinki i think it's a good good example that helsinki is trying to avoid uh, that what we see on saw so in Helsinki with the previous mayor Jan Vapavori, he really went out of his way to make sure that we, you know, we have low cost housing also in central areas, not not just in the suburbs. And I, I think that's a that's a good way to approach it. Um, finally, just to, before we go, there's there's uh, there's two interesting stories. Uh, of course, a number of journalists, and I was I was talking about uh, the NZZ correspondent being in Tallinn at the moment, which probably has something to do with a severed cable uh, in uh, in the Baltic at at the moment. Uh, but uh, off the back of that, there's also uh, interesting from a Finnish perspective as well. Uh, well and we should probably add also a Chinese ship um, also, uh, which has the spotlight on it uh, in the Baltic at the moment, or probably it's long gone. Uh, but also a, a Finnish uh, delegation also heading to uh, to Taiwan. Uh, right now as well. Yeah, so let's start with the with the cables, undersea cables. So they they um, last week it was revealed um, that uh, both a gas pipeline and a data cable running from Estonia to Finland had been damaged, um, and and the authorities in Finland and Estonia said that it's most likely a, a result of sabotage. And now this week Sweden. Um, revealed that uh, an undersea data cable uh, linking Sweden with uh, Estonia had also been damaged, and they suspect sabotage as well. So, so now the investigations are focusing on the the ships that have been uh, in the vicinity of the damaged uh, cables and, and pipelines. And and but I have to say, I mean, Finns and Estonians and Swedes as well, they're just playing this really like in, taking a cool-headed approach. They'll just you know they're saying let's investigate, let's see who's behind this, and then react as opposed to you know just jumping into conclusions because everybody knows where the finger is pointing but they're not saying it out out loud really really playing it cool and um, then the other story you mentioned here this is a lithuanian um, officials visiting uh, taiwan uh, next next week and we remember how i believe it was two years ago when china got really angry with lithuania when when they opened a de facto taiwanese uh, representative office in the capital vilnius um, and and now they just want to build ever closer ties with uh, china and it's it's interesting you know why would a small baltic country such as lithuania want to want to really uh, annoy china in that way and what 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 are they set to gain from this closer relationship with with Taiwan. So I thought this was an interesting story to mention too. 
Petr Bitov, our correspondent in the Nordics, uh, thank you very much uh, for that. Uh, Florian, uh, I just uh, we we, t- we touched on Poland at the moment. Uh, you've got the paper open to a story. You know, this is you know this is uh, we've covered uh, of course uh, one one red and white election, uh, and of course now we're we're in uh, government making mode uh, off, off the back of of course uh, last week's elections, and it's an interesting time for Poland because here you have a country which has just been on the rise, certainly in the headlines. Uh, uh, because you know, I would say probably over the last probably couple of months, le- election aside, here's a nation which you know becomes or is on, on the verge of becoming you know probably you know the most most toothsome uh, you know Western or at least continental uh, country in terms of defense. Uh, just the the defense acquisitions that have been going on um, enormous, um, and at the same time, of course. Um, uh, if you look at also what is really seen as a little bit of a of a Polish economic miracle as well, and now we have a sh- we have had a, a shift, not a huge shift, but it is a shift a- away from the the right, um, and um, and the return of Mr. Tusk. Yeah, I think this has not received enough coverage, to be honest, in the media for the significance that it holds. You have um, your three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's been in the FT and in the NZZ. Um, and uh, voting participation, 74%. So they they bet the, they bet clearly beat the other um, red and white uh, elections. Um, no, but I think um, what's, what's important here is that so we've seen Poland um, kind of coming closer to Europe, to the EU, um, due to, of course, the, the Russian um, um, aggression in Ukraine, what you've mentioned, Tyler, defense spending through the roof, and that was enabled partly by this economic boom um, that we've seen in Poland. But the one thing that really kind of held Poland back of, of moving closer to, to Western European states was social policy, I think. So there was, um, at least um, in government, you know, there was a very, a very kind of reactionist social policy, um, you know, a, a lot of, a lot of, uh, um, disputes around uh, abortion, around gay rights, um, um, more um, even um, around kind of um, the, the the separation, you know, um, of of the judicial system um, um, from from government. So I think a lot of these um, things were really holding Poland back of of integrating or of of being a closer ally to to the rest of the EU or the Western part of the EU, and that is shifting now. So that's why I think that holds significance because um, the the Russian aggression in Ukraine kind of pulled a lot of European countries closer together, um, really emphasizing the significance of the European Union as a block, you know, because otherwise a country like Poland, what should they do? Um, And so I think that combined with a social um, policy agenda that is, that is, you know, um, more aligned, so to say, with the European Commission, with some 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 uh, Western European countries um, will really um, pave the way of um, you know, a strengthened European Union. So I think for the, the EU as a whole, this has huge implications. And of course, Donald Tusk is, you know, at his very heart, he's a European, right? I mean, he was the president um, of the European Council. Um, he, he lived in Brussels. So, I mean, I think we were really going to see a strengthened um, EU um, from that election. And, and that will probably have implications um, more broadly. And, and final point, is I think something we should be watching out, um, not just in Poland, but it's a more broad trend that we see. So we see a lot of countries um, 
where kind of the party system becomes more fragmented. And that's what we see in Poland now, too. So it's a coalition of three parties, basically, that Donald Tusk is kind of, you know, heading um, the, the civic platform and that, that won the majority. And the question is really, how do you govern with three parties? And we see that in Germany at the moment. And it's a trend that we've, we've in the past seen kind of more um, bipartisan coalitions, so kind of two parties in a coalition. Now we see three. And it's just tremendously important it's really difficult to coordinate three-party agendas. And that's, I think, um, I mean, it goes a bit against the point that I made before, but that's an increasing difficulty we see in many countries to really govern um, for an extended period of time in a consistent manner. Uh, Juliet, uh, Fabian, uh, Poland, yes, time spent there. Juliet, yeah. You for, not well, been to Poland. And, and, and given also all of your Vatican background, everything, no, no, no time spent. In. I didn't follow John Paul II, but not that old. I know you're not that. I know that. I just, I just wanted to check. <laughs> Fabienne. Uh, yeah, I've, I've, I've been there. I have friends there. And also my company um, has some media there. And so like besides like the discussions about like abortion and gay rights, press freedom is something that really worried me the past years. And this is something I hope Donald Tusk is uh, able to, to turn. Florian, maybe um, Monica on Sunday from Warsaw? Or, or elsewhere? I'd, I'd be down for it. Okay, good. Well, we'll, uh, we'll Desi, you heard that. Our, uh, our Desi, she's, uh, of course, uh, responsible for booking these programs. Thumb, thumbs up all around. Uh, just gone uh, 1051 here in Zurich. Uh, 1051 also uh, in Paris, where we're heading uh, now to, of course, uh, speak to Adrian Garcia. Uh, he is the man, the voice behind uh, the podcast, uh, The Bold Way, uh, of course, a weekly program uh, which looks and talks, it looks at and talks to, uh, of course, uh, interesting creative voices, mostly uh, in a French context, uh, but also from elsewhere. Uh, bonjour, Adrian. Bonjour, Pedro. How are you? Very well, thank you. Uh, let's uh, let's start with. Uh, I, I can see that uh, you have a bit of a, a food theme. Surprise, surprise! Uh, in terms of what we're going to focus uh, focus on today, but if I was uh, uh, opening up uh, Les Echo, uh, Le Monde, uh, any other newspapers this weekend, uh, what what's caught your eye in France? Uh, you know, the, the atmosphere is very heavy. Uh, it's not very uh, exciting. Well, well, it's very aligned with what is going on in the in the world. Le Point is, uh, is uh, talking about l'islamisme, uh, these crimes, and our demise. Uh, the French monde uh, is about uh, is about Israel, Hamas, uh, Iran, and, and Russia, and um, and uh, and uh, and Le Figaro is the same. You know, it's, it's, they're all talking about the same thing. You know, this professor who got killed last week, last Friday. Uh, this, this war uh, between uh, between uh, Israel and, and Hamas is it's terrible. It's very sad. So I wanted to to, to be a bit lighter um, to 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 to, to uh, um, with you today. So I decided to deep dive into the Zeko weekend because uh, they, they've got this special food issue, uh, and I, I found it very interesting. And I and I and I have three very good articles that 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 came up to me. And the, the, the free article are all inspiration comes to chef, um, the very French triumph of the gourmet coffee and the rise of air fryers. Um, my very first question is to you, Tyler. Do you know what is a, a gourmet café, gourmet, a café gourmand in French? Listen, I don't, and I don't want to get into a fight with you on air, but I, I'm, I'm glad that there's a coffee revolution has started to happen in France, because generally I think the coffee in France is quite rubbish, and Juliet's agreeing with me right now. But anyway, but you, you go on, tell us, and let's not fight. So, yeah. 
Uh, well, this is not really about Café Revolution, but a Café Gourmand is a French dessert concept that typically consists of a, a cup of coffee served with an assortment of small pastries or desserts. Uh, Bernard Boudboul, the French food consultant, very famous in France, is credited with the invention of the Café Gourmand. The story goes back in the 90s when the owner of Lacrier, a restaurant in Paris, expressed concerns about not selling enough desserts. So it was then that Bernard uh, had his breakthrough idea. He noticed that all uh, that at the end of all meal in France, in the, uh, well, sorry, he noticed that at the end of a meal in gastronomic restaurants, um, you know, they offer miniardies for free. So he thought, why not offer them individually and charge for them? The concept was to serve a cup of coffee with a selection of mini desserts. This idea turns out to be a very uh, a very good uh, idea, the word spread. I know every restaurant proposes Café Gourmand in France. So next time you are in Paris, you've got to take a, a Café Gourmand, uh, Taylor. And I'm going to try to implement this in our cafe by, af- by this afternoon um, as well. You've been here, Adrian. Maybe it's a, it's a business model uh, for us. Uh, just, just quickly, um, do you want to talk about appliances? Because I know you really want to talk about air fryers. Of course, fryers, air fryers. Thanks you. It's because of you uh, I talk about these air fryer things. You 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 bring these articles to me uh, during the week last Friday. So for those who still live live in the 90s and who haven't given into the, the temptation of air fryer, air fryer is the machine that promises to fry, saute, roast, and even reheat your food with very little or no oil at all. And believe me, it's becoming a new the new best friend of your kitchen. More than half of the households in the United States and South Korea are already equipped. And who do we have to thank for this little revolution? A Frenchman, ladies and gentlemen, the said company. But beware, do, do, do not be mistaken. Even if it was a Frenchman who imagined this first prototype, competition was quick to follow. And today, there are hundreds of different models. It's almost like being in a supermarket of oil-less fryer. And with sales that increased 2.5 times in France in just three years, we can say that the air fryer is conquering our kitchen at the speed of flight. Do you have an air, fry, uh, uh, air fryer, Tyler? <laughs> what, what Wait, hold just... on. Wait, Fab, Fabienne, I think, has, has an <laughs> yeah, air fryer. She's I'm, got a, seeing, a front no, cover story. No, I don't no. have one. I'm seeing them all over Instagram and TikTok these days. And I'm just wondering what you're describing. Just sounds like my oven. <laughs> exactly. That's what I'm thinking too, right? It's a mini oven. That's the mini truth. Oven. What's the difference? Exactly. So I'm going to buy one. I'm going to buy one. He doesn't have one either. I don't, I don't have it yet. No, I've got a big oven, you know. And the, the, my, my roast chicken with spaghetti is already in the oven. But, uh, but I don't have any air fryer yet. Okay, so but what, what, Julie, why are you skeptical? Chicken and spaghetti, first of all. No, secondly, I'm hearing all about this air fryers all over the world on TikTok. You're right. My kid said to me, why don't we have an air fryer? I'm like, what the heck? It's like fry with oil or use an oven. Okay. Listen, Edwin, you're going to, of course, test this out for us. Have you, do you have your eye on a model for us already? Not, not really. I think I'm going to go for a Seb, of course, because I'm French and I want to support the French. Industry. Are you French? I don't think any of our listeners noticed. But anyway, um, <laughs> Seb, but I was going to say, though, as well, I think we're going to get some angry letters from Korea because I think the Koreans are going to say that, 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 that they really have that mar- market cornered. But you, you did acknowledge that uh, it, it, it took off there maybe first. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, mainly in the U.S. and in Korea first. It's uh, honestly, uh, it's the first time I heard about this uh, air fryer thing. Um, 
my my parents don't have it. My 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 girlfriends don't have it. Do not have it. So so um, I, I think I'm gonna be the first one to have it in the in in, uh, in my uh, in my in, uh, in my family. Okay, listen, Christmas is coming. We want to check in with you, Edwin, in, in the coming weeks uh, and see where you get in your journey to buy, to buy a Seb uh, air fryer. Uh, very, very good to speak to you, uh, as always. That was uh, Edwin Garcia from The Bold Way, joining us uh, from Paris this morning, in case you, in case you missed that. Uh, just, uh, just, you're in hysterics, Florina. You're right over there. <laughs> yes, <sir. laughs> I don't know. I think. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm waiting for that for that chicken roast with spaghetti um, at Julia's house. <laughs> this is house. a national dish. Listen, I, I, listen, I, I want to. I want, I want to learn all about <laughs> because, this because our kids well. won the battle over air fryers. Friends, we're going to have to leave it there. I know we've got a, definitely a story coming up on Handel Zeitung uh, about that business. Juliet Lindley, Flora Negley, Fabian Kinsman, also Emma Nelson. Thanks. Also Andrew Tuck, De- De- Petri Versov, and also Adrian uh, Garcia joining us from Paris. Our producers today, Desi, and of course Emma Nelson back in London, uh, and also Mariella Bevan was looking after the audio for us. I'm Tyler Brulé. I'm going to be joining from Hong Kong next week. We'll speak then. Goodbye.